This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss healthcare data analytics with Dr. Dwight McNeil, the author of the recently published volume, Using Person-Centered Health Analytics to Live Longer. Dwight, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, David. Thanks for the opportunity, and uh, good to talk with you again. Uh, Dr. McNeil's bio, of course, as I always noted, is posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, largely due to the advent of wearable medical devices, software applications that support this technology, the increasing use of electronic health records, and the medical industry's measurable failure to improve population health, we are moving toward what's termed the democratization of healthcare, democratized medicine, or what I'll term the emancipation of the patient. This is because today, with far greater access to data and information, the individual or patient can now better manage their own health or health care or legitimately become the primary agent of their own care. With me again, discuss the use of person-centered health data analytics and their potential is Dwight McNeil. So, Dwight, with that as background, before we go into the details of what you mean by person-centered health care, let me ask you, what motivated you to publish this, your third volume, on health analytics? Well, thanks. Thanks for that nice introduction, too, to the book. Um, well, you know, my first book addressed what the healthcare sector can learn from the analytics of other sectors, including sports, politics, banking, and retail. And the bottom line is it could learn a lot. But healthcare has a unique responsibility to improve the human condition. It's not just a profit-making machine. So most of the health analytics today focus on the business needs of two Ps, providers and payers. payers. Yeah, and I wanted to focus on the other P, people. And I wanted to shift the orientation from business intelligence, how to make the business healthier, to health intelligence, how to make people healthier. And I wanted to shift our obsession with insurance and costs to what I think is the most important outcome, which is a long and healthy life. So the data has been pretty compelling over many years that the American way of producing health is failing. Uh, we know that America ranks like 28th out of the 34 OECD countries in terms of premature mortality. And a lot of that has to do with lifestyle-related chronic diseases. In fact, if you um, look at disability-adjusted life years, which is really a metric for looking at a long and healthy life, over two-thirds of the lost years of good, healthy years are attributed to five everyday behaviors. And these are eating, smoking, drinking, sitting, and not taking medications or not taking care of monitoring your health. So that's a very compelling piece of data that I drill down to say that it really comes down to behavior change, lifestyle chronic diseases, and I wanted to explore the role that digital technology can play. Because, you know, good health is not something you get from healthcare. It happens every day by the actions we take, 
as well as by the actions taken by others on our behalf. And the literature is very clear on the social determinants of health, that our behaviors are far more influential than the effects of health care, social environmental factors, and genetics. So I want to nudge people to realize that we should be the drivers of our health, not the passengers. We need to get engaged, and we cannot depend on others to make it right. And this includes the mostly good intentions of medicine, government, employers, research breakthroughs, better business processes, or something else out there, something out there that's going to take care of us. We need to act, and our good health depends on it. Thank you. Thank you. Interesting. Let's go to uh, the details of your volume, again, using person-centered health analytics to live longer. In the work, you provide uh, more of what you term a person-centered health analytics, and the, and the letters PCHA. So you provide a person-centered health analytics toolkit that, as you say, can empower, enable, and equip people, picking up on the answer you just gave, with 46 tools and resources you note that optimize or can optimize their health care or their health status, excuse me. You've categorized this toolkit into four sections. Uh, can you name these four sections and can you provide examples for each? Sure. Well, first, let me be clear on what person-centered health analytics is. So um, you talked about emancipation of the patient, and I want to talk about emancipation of the person because health is a much broader concept than health care. You know, it has to do with well-being, long and healthy life, not just what health care tends to concentrate on, which is sick care. Sick care, right. Okay, so the focus is on the person, it's on health, and it's on this uh, confluence of new analytics, which is the uh, connected devices, you know, that companion we wear all the time that's with us more than anybody else, which is our smartphone, uh, the apps and the ads. The ads are devices or sensors that connect to the smartphone and do a variety of things, measure your blood pressure, your HbA1c, and all that. Um, the, and the ability of social networks, so the smartphone uh, allows for this connectedness with others to share information, and the smartphone has tremendous advanced computing power that can be put to use to make the information usable for others. So let's just put that out there. Those are the, that's what I call person-centered health analytics. So there's four areas that I provide um, a rationale for and some tools. And the first one is knowing me. Um, and this is the idea that there's much more that we can know about ourselves and there are readily, readily available tools to do so and in knowing that, we can guide our own behaviors about our health, and we may be able to guide our healthcare uh, practitioners to attend to these concerns more. Okay, so let me just give two examples. Uh, one is um, from Health Begins. Health Begins is a new organization that's concerned about the social determinants of health and has a tool called the Upstream Risk Screening Tool which is a, it's a very short questionnaire and asks things like, do you have a problem making ends meet at the end of the month? And this is all self-filled uh, self out, uh, self-administered. Within the last 12 months, did you find the food you bought didn't last as long as you, you didn't have enough money to get more? Did you have any concerns about housing such as safety, eviction, and cost? Now, IOM did come up with a report in June 
about the need for an expanded electronic health record that includes these social and psychological issues in the medical record because they're so determinant of our health. You know, it may make more of a difference to people with diabetes to have a pair of sneakers than to have another exam for their HbA1c levels. It may make more sense for people with asthma to have a good place to live uh, rather than the medication that's provided. So if people don't have the wherewithal to continue the treatment regimen that's provided to them because of these social issues, they're not going to make it. They don't have transportation if they don't have good food. So the Health Begins Upscreen Risk Screening Tool is something that people can use and say, gee, you know, these are concerns for me. It's something that they can fill out and bring to their providers. Now, all of the tools that I have, by the way, are available. They're all free, but they're not marketed to people. They're marketed to intermediaries so that, you know, a healthcare organization might pick up the Health Begins tool, and it might not. Mm-hmm. But there's no reason why you or I can't pick it up ourselves. The other one that's really important is called the patient activation measure, PAM for short. And this addresses people's willingness and ability to take actions on their own behalf, you know, for self-efficacy and the like. Um, and Judy Hibbard, who's the uh, founder and been to working in these fields for a long time on patient activation, says, for example, Imagine clinicians trying to treat a patient completely blinded to the patient's record and list of clinical symptoms, yet when clinicians encourage engagement in their care, they do so blinded to any information on the patient's capability for taking on a self-management role. So the, the scale has been very related to understanding people's ability to get active, and it also provides kind of a roadmap on how to get them there. So it's really important. So that's knowing me. Um, protecting health is the idea that these four behaviors are important, you know, and they don't yet get to the healthcare system until there is an illness, but they're doing, but they're, but they're important every day the eating, sitting, smoking, drinking, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So there's many examples of um, these protecting health things. You know, you may wear a Fitbit charge wristband, you know, a lot of people do. This, the screen displays the steps taken and the distance traveled, calories burned. It uh, integrates with other systems like digital scales or with other applications like Lose It. The other is Lose It, which is you know the most important food intake uh, diary system, if you will. A lot of people you know write down what they're eating and bring it to their doctors once a quarter. Well, this is something that people can do for constant monitoring. It's easy to administer because a lot of the foodstuffs are categorized. And uh, so it also allows for this uh, comparison to, well, what I'm eating, is it related to anything else in my life by this integration with other apps and ads? The most important, however, I think, but I want to say at this point that I think this area of protecting health uh, 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 is not as effective as it can be, partly because the technology has not engaged people mm-hmm. sufficiently. Minding illness is uh, focuses on this fifth behavior, which is taking medications because half of people don't take medications as prescribed and on self-monitoring behaviors so that many people that have a chronic disease need to monitor their HbA1c, their blood pressure, their weight, whatever. So the ability for people to be able to do that is important. 
and a few examples of this are, for example, uh, uh, the uh, Telcare blood glucose meter. I mean, this is a smartphone sensor that measures your uh, HbA1c and uh, is able to create a database of the information when you did it. And for many people, having their own algorithms about their own health condition can be instructive. You know, when is it that my levels go high? What is it related to, et cetera? And then with a connected device, it can connect to your doctor and it can connect to other people. Um, the other thing in this category is called uh, eye triage or these very good uh, programs now that some of using uh, artificial intelligence to be able to help people self-diagnose or at least be able to understand if they need to go to the doctor today or an emergency room, et cetera. Um, so eye triage and others, including the Mayo Clinic, have very good systems that addresses the questions, what could be wrong and where can I go? And I've used it a lot. In other words, when I have a concern and my families have a concern, it's, it allays a lot of concerns about uh, whether it's as serious as uh, my, uh, my mind might take me to. Mm -hmm. um, the last is uh, managing data. And this is the idea of getting data, storing data, and protecting your own personal data. So we both know, or we all know, it's hard enough to get your own medical data. It's hard enough to get your information from the medical record. Some people do have access to their electronic health record, but it's usually in the format of practitioners. Mm -hmm. People can't get their lab reports without permission from the doctor. And it's been a long history of people in the medical profession not wanting people to do self-diagnosis and to collect that data, such as pregnancy tests, HIV testing, and most recently, genetic testing. So the next issue is storing the data and how to do that. And this is re related to protecting data. Um, people are at risk. Uh, how many times have you been hacked, David? Right. Uh, I mean, I, you, both you and I have been hacked with the OPM thing. Mm -hmm. And I've been hacked. My, my, my health plan has been hacked. And my retailer has been hacked. So depending on these aggregators in the cloud to protect your data, however well-intentioned, is coming under a lot of scrutiny, to put it diplomatically. Um, so the HIPAA does protect what providers and payers do about your data, but for your own collected information, you're, 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 you're on your own. So for example, with the Apple Watch now, and Apple's approach to um, its app development, whatever data you put into that watch, according to their terms and conditions, is retrievable by whatever app developer wants to look at it. And that's a real hole that needs to be stopped. Okay, so my thing about uh, these issues comes back to uh, protecting the data, storing the data, is comes back to when I do my taxes. I can do it in the cloud, and given how Intuit has been in trouble lately, I don't really want to give that information to them. But I can keep it on my hard drive. And I can use the programs to do that as well. So there's a lot of issues about protecting data having to do with good computer hygiene, what to do about social networking, which is just a, it's just a, I mean, these, these systems are designed for people to give up all the secrets of their life, and they do, and then, then they're at risk for that. So that's an overview of the four sections uh, and some examples. Okay, very helpful. Thank you.
as you're well aware, there's frequently a substantial disconnect between what we know and what we do. So here my question is, how does this information become actionable, or how do you think uh, the quote-unquote empowering, enabling, and equipping people to be more self-reliant actually happens? I mean, how do we evoke ultimately uh, what you discuss in Chapter 6, that is behavior change? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's three issues here, and I'll try to boil it down. Um, the first is some societality trends that make us want to be more self-reliant. Okay, so the, the, the millennial issue, the millennial generation, often called the unmoored generation because they eschew the traditional institutions, marriage, religion, uh, work. Blind cards. Um, yeah, and so when it comes to health care, they really don't believe that their health is up to their doctor. They believe it's up to them. The second is super consumers. You know, we've all become accustomed in other areas of our lives, and I've documented this in that first book I did, to having data and tools at our fingertips to do our banking, investing, travel reservations, whatever. And we do it on our own terms. We do it in Starbucks. We do it on our own devices, and we do it our way. So people are coming to the understanding that they don't understand why it cannot be the same for healthcare. You know, why can't I get my medical record digitally so that I can do with it what I want? Why can't I get my lab report? Why can't I communicate with my doctor? And third is social networks, which, which are important. Uh, you know, people are increasingly relying on their friends and their peers for health information, advice, and support. And the data shows that, that the vast majority place more trust in the recommendation from other people even those they do not know, than in institu institutions. So, you know, when I go on a travel trip, I'm not going to go to the Marriott hotel site. I'm going to go to TripAdvisor. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, and then they connect with others with all of this information through the convergence of their digital devices. So that's one strand. There's a, there's a societal trend towards self-reliance. The second is that entrepreneurs are really capturing this trend towards what I call uh, SOPRI DEMOCRA. It's uh, an acronym for um, Self-Oriented um, Prevention, Diagnosis, Monitoring, and Care. Two examples. Uh, one is Theranos, which is a very innovative company that realizes that people don't want to be stuck with needles to give their blood. People are scared to death of it. So they've come up with a technology of, you know, a home-administered, um, prick that you get a drop of blood and they can basically do much of the testing that the others can do. And they also want to do that and bring that to, uh, to, to democratize it, if you will, so that people have access to their own data. And the third is the technology. Now, up until now, I think the technology has been, and I can go into this later, but it's um, been uh, based on slick and click. That is the technology of uh, smartphones and apps has been to click, and to click is to get ad revenues because that's the business model. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're talking about behavior change, it's not the same as talking about getting an Uber car. Okay, it's complicated, and it really requires people to, the technologists, to understand what makes us tick and how we can stick with, with behavior change. So those three things, this, uh, this uh, trend towards self-reliance, the trend towards entrepreneurs being heavily funded to do these types of 
um, self-oriented diagnosis. Think of CVS Health. CVS Health is going into the business to make sure that people have convenience and affordability in their clinics, in their drugstores. And the technology is, I think, on the verge of understanding that we're not talking about Uber when we're talking about changing lifestyle. And part of this overall is, as you noted, the breakdown in trust in organizations. Right. right. So let's right. go. I was going to ask you about data privacy. I think you did cover that somewhat. So let me just ask uh, this question. You note other barriers uh, to use implementation of these tools, and you cite by category these that there are barriers by um, physicians, payments, uh, proof pleasing customers, et cetera. I'm interested in barriers posed by physicians and, and, and payment particularly. Uh, you're well aware, of course, that Medicare has been very reluctant to expand payment or for telehealth coverage or remote monitoring. Um, what's your sense of, of the more challenging barriers posed and how we might overcome them? Yeah. Well, I mean, there are two kind of governing groups that determine what gets into the pipeline, and Medicare is one of them, and the other is FDA. So um, I understand that telehealth has been around for a long time. You know, it's, it's incomprehensible to me why that isn't standard practice in rural communities especially. Uh, you know, my son is in a plan in Boston with a very progressive employer that has this feature where they can do Skype, they can do email with their doctors. It's all about the convenience, affordability, and taking the myst the mystery the, the, the mysticism out of medicine. Mm -hmm. But as a side, and FDA has done more with uh understanding digital devices which are swamping their review practice, but they're putting out some some approvals which are very helpful. Now with physicians uh, you know this is mostly related to minding illness and whether they see these digital devices as an aid or as an impediment. Now, physicians, of course, are mostly concerned with the value for the patient. They want patients to get better, but they don't want it to hinder their practice. In other words, uh, healthcare has its own business processes, and who wants to get a great big stream of my HbA1c data for the last month streaming in on my connected device? That's that's the fault of technology that it doesn't uh, distill that for just the appropriate information that a physician wants, but other than that. Then there are these organizational approvals that all physicians have to live within if they're in a group, which means if they're going to, in essence, prescribe a formulary of apps and ads, it has to be approved, and that formulary will then be subject to legal issues if something happens as a result of their prescribing it. Okay, so that's the, the physician issue is very important, and it's governed a lot also by payment. That is, if there's not proof, if there's not uh, evidence of benefit and no harm, then uh, reimbursers aren't going to put this on their formularies, et cetera. So they're all kind of tied together. Now, the good news and the bad news is these things are not terribly expensive. Okay, so for accountable care organizations or others that want to uh, focus on prevention, even and are incented to do so, probably. and are incentive to do it, these are not high cost items. I mean, we're you know they're to people have to measure their HbA1c anyway. So the question is, 
is using these devices more convenient? And most importantly, does it engage people more in the oversight and the co-production of their own health? And if it just does that, it's quite worthwhile. All right, that's a win, yes. We have time for one uh, last wrap-up question, a couple minutes here. So let me ask you, um, leaving aside the adoption, use, and support challenges, what's possible in, in what time frame? I mean, how, how, how widespread do you think uh, use of uh, person-centered health analytics will become and to what effect? Yeah, I think it's very early, but I see some positive signs. It's a tough question, of course, as you know. Um, but let me just let me just emphasize a few points on why I think uh, there's a there's a positive future for it. The first is I'm very impressed with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation emphasis on a culture of health in all that they do. It's been really really impressive over the last year or so. Everything they do kind of expands this notion that we have to be concerned about health in addition to healthcare. Second is there's a large, a very large amount of venture capital surging into companies that are creating applications like Theronis and like Proteus Health. Proteus Health is a very interesting um, technology that monitors how, if people take their medication by actually putting sensors in their stomach. It's worth a whole session. Um, the other thing is the likelihood that major technology has such good capabilities, artificial intelligence, computing power, the iPhone being on people's bodies, and they're having more familiarity with that than their spouses. Google so Glass, the, right, yeah. Yeah, so the capacity for it to be a constant companion, a coach, a digital, um, provide digital hugs, as I call it in the right, book. Right, yes, it, your it, text. It's, it's really... The opportunity is there, and uh, it will be grasped eventually. The business models are are are, are coming into being. The global payment issues, you know, um, accountable care organizations, um, CVS Health as a as a company who's tremendously succeeded on the mission to improve health. So, all this concentration on health. And the understanding that our big challenge really is chronic diseases and specifically lifestyle chronic diseases, I think is beginning to settle in. I am, despite innovators' concerns, think that the FDA is, is approving more and more apps and ads, and I think that's good, and I think it's at an appropriate um, um, pace. And finally, I think, so these are all supply issues, you know, can the supply be made better? But on the demand side, I think people themselves uh, hopefully will want and need to take more control of their health. Uh, as you know, our good friend, Jessie Grumman, uh, spent her life on engagement. And she always said, you know, it's not an, an option to be engaged. If we can't, this is a quote, if we can't or won't engage in it, we suffer unnecessarily. It's not just a nice thing to do if you have time. It's critically necessary. Um, and a lot of research shows that engagement is related to better outcomes, better experience of care, lower cost. So the real purpose of person-centered health analytics is not necessarily to provide uh, uh, uni-focused data on your fitness or on your HbA1c. The real big opportunity is whether it can engage people, and I think there's a latent desire to be engaged if everything uh, 
if 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 there are such products and there's supporters and stakeholders uh, that want to make it happen. Well, thank you. A great great review, uh, Dwight. I'm very appreciative for the discussion. Again, your book, Using Person-Centered Health Analytics to Live Longer. So thank you very much for your time today. Okay. Thank you, David. Have a good day. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.